Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and Theologian in Residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we read Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Just the opening and closing of a book that turns all kinds of social norms on its head. That famous line, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God, the one that so many people use today in weddings, is not from a wedding at all, but from the mouth of Ruth, who is refusing Naomi's plea to go find herself a husband and committing herself instead to her deceased husband's mother. This text asks us, what really is family? And what is peoplehood? Following a theme we are seeing a lot this season, Ruth decides to just care for the life in front of her, whatever that may mean for her future. And this act, as it trickles through the generations, means very good things. Thanks for being with us. Hello, Bobby. What's up? Hey, Amy. There's not, I mean, there's not too much up. Not too much up. We, um, <laughs> not to jump us right in, but I, but the next thought that came to me is kind of jumping right in. So should we dispense with the small talk and, and jump right in? Let's do it. Let's do Wow. This is a really, like my head is spinning from the jump from <laughs> where we were yeah. to where we are. So we were in the 10 commandments, right? Is that what the last We were. Was? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 10 commandments. Which, to be fair, we read the version in we Deuteronomy. We were in Deuteronomy, so we jumped quite I a long associate way associate them time. with Exodus because that's, you know, where they initially are. But yeah. to be fair, they were in Deuteronomy. Fine. And now we're in the book of Ruth. <laughs> yeah. Which is not as far from the book of Deuteronomy in the Christian ordering of the canon as it is yes. in the Jewish ordering of the canon. Because yes. Ruth is in, in the writings in your tradition. Yeah. All the way mm-hmm. through. Yeah. The so we're on, you know, we just skipped like a thousand pages. In yeah. The, in, my, <laughs> in, in, in the Christian ordering, we just, we skipped Joshua and Judges. Mm-hmm. So it's not, you know, it's yeah, still a little it's bit. it's not so bad. It's not mm-hmm. so bad. It is also true if you frame it, you know, like two weeks ago, we were at the burning bush. And now we're at Ruth the mm-hmm. Moabite. Like mm-hmm. we have, mm-hmm. we've covered some territory. We have covered some territory, as have the Israelites. As have the Israelites, yeah. So, I mean, gosh, there are so many ways to lead us into where we are in the book of Ruth in terms of sort of like the setting of the story or an introduction to the literature. What do you think we need to know to start reading from this book? Yeah, I mean, yes. And to read from this particular story, like we're reading chapter one and a little bit of four. And so like, how do you frame that? It's slightly different than maybe how do you frame like the book as a whole? I have always, I, I, I remember this last time Mm. and it's true now too. I have trouble talking about Ruth chapter one without talking about the book of Ruth, which I think is a real challenge because the book of Ruth is endlessly fascinating. We actually Mm -hmm. did a couple of episodes about Ruth 
think we covered the whole book, actually. Or at least well, we you've covered- written a book that wasn't entirely about Ruth, but gives a lot of time to Ruth. You've yeah, written I'm- a book on the 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 Lost Scrolls, right? The Megillot. Yeah, the Forgotten Books of the Bible, as forgotten I call them. To- the Lost <laughs> so Scrolls. I made it a little more dramatic. That title. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. So on the Megillot, the Festival Scrolls, and so Ruth is a chapter in that book. And then you and I did a summer series a couple of years ago on the those on the those five scrolls, and so we did I think two episodes on the Book of Ruth. Mm-hmm. So the reason that the Book of Ruth is where it is in the Christian canon is because the Christian canon is trying to order things sort of historically, chronologically, as they are set. And the book of Ruth is set in the period of the judges. And the very end of the book of Ruth, spoiler alert, sets up the birth of David, who's going to be the king anointed in the book of Samuel. So the book of Ruth sits right in between uh, judges and Samuel as this sort of transition moment, which is actually where it also fits narratively. Historically, like all bets are off, right? Probably the book of Ruth was actually written quite a bit later. In any case, the Israelites uh, have come out of Egypt last week. They were at the edge of the promised land, getting the law given a second time, reiterated to them by Moses. In the book of Joshua, then, they have entered into the land and taken over the land from the Canaanites who were living there at the time. And then have established this kind of loose tribal arrangement without a king, but with people known as judges who sort of rise up, charismatic leaders who come to the fore and lead the tribes of Israel for a time. So the book of Ruth is set during that period. We're in the tribal period, the period of judges in ancient Israel. There is no king yet, but they Mm -hmm. are in the land. Now, In that context, then, is this conflict or tension with another group of people who are called Moabites, and Ruth, who is the heroine of this text, is a Moabite. And so there's a little bit of, like, surprise there. Moab is to the east in the Transjordan. It's sort of modern-day, part of modern-day Jordan, between the Jabbok River where we were wrestling and the Arnon River. And it is close enough to Israel that they were had a sense of themselves as being related, but also there was a real tension between them. I, it's sort of like people who live in Texas and people who live in Arkansas. <laughs> like we're like really close. We share a border, but like, ah, we really claim each other. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there's a little mm-hmm. suspicion uh, there. I don't know what, what that is in your, in your place. <laughs> the Moabites. I mean, this is, oh, this sorry, is totally ahead. unrelated, but yeah, I yeah. just have to tell you because it came into my head. I read yesterday. I don't know if this is true, but I read it. So maybe it's true that there's some Scandinavian country that maybe the Netherlands that uses the word Texas to mean like something that is totally unhinged and has no rules. <laughs> no. So like they'll say like that party was Texas. Like, Are you kidding? I that's really amazing. hope that. I really hope that's true. Yeah. And you as an Arkansas. You know, there's a there's a debate about maybe. this. Yeah. The official term is normally Arkan uh sorry, Arkansan. Ah. But there is a subgroup of people who say Arkansas. Which I, which I really like. No one like. says Arkansasian. Arkansasian is <laughs> not me. one of the things. one, is one not of the one options. of them. 
So anyway, I just wanted to give you a way to sort of like mock Texas as someone in Arkansas. But please continue your important introduction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, but the mocking is kind of what is kind of what happens, right? A little bit yeah. in the biblical text. So there's the story of the origin of Moabites that's told in Genesis chapter 19. So this is the story that the Israelites tell about where people from Moab are from. And it, that chapter is right in the destruction of the city of Sodom with, you know, fire and brimstone from heaven. Lot and his daughters have fled. Lot's wife has turned into a pillar of salt. The three of them end up in a cave together and they think the world is over. And so Lot's daughters decide to get him drunk. And then they're going to go and have sex with him because this is the only way they can think up to reproduce. And so that's what they do. And according to the biblical text, the children who are born of that drunken, incestuous sex are the Ammonites on the one hand. And the Moabites, on the other hand, Ruth is a Moabite. That sort of disdain for Ammonites and Moabites then gets picked up in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 23, verse 3, which says that neither Ammonites nor Moabites may ever be admitted into the assembly of Israel, which I'm not 100% sure what that exactly means. So I want to ask you that. But there is a concern about Moabites and Ammonites that they should not be allowed sort of to intermingle, become part of the Israelite people. And so with that background, here we have a story about Ruth, who is a Moabite, who is going to become... And yet. (laughs) Yeah. And so this text is cutting against all kinds of biblical traditions in a really really interesting way, as we'll see. Yeah, it's a... It's it's a fascinating story. It is in the Jewish community. We read this book on Shavuot, which is um, a holiday that usually falls like May, end of May, maybe mm-hmm. early June. And I, I think it's red then just because there's a threshing floor. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, because of like agricultural this, yeah. harvest links. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's really like part of a different body of literature in the Jewish canon. So yeah. I just like it's a real mind shift. But I really appreciate your setting it for us. Like, no, but if we look at where the story is set, you're right. It is set exactly around the time of the judges. And that's pretty much where it starts. It so, is pretty much during. Yeah. During the time when the judges ruled. Let me just I just want to ask you one other thing, which is mm-hmm. my understanding is that Ruth is celebrated as one of the the first converts mm-hmm. to Judaism. Is that, am I, yeah, am I saying that, that correctly? Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. I don't know, actually, like reading the text, how I how I feel about that. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, yeah, she is, she is seeing, you know, we'll see her beautiful speech yeah. of commitment to Naomi and to all of the things in Naomi's life, including Naomi's God. And so that is, that is seen as a conversion. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah, this book's turning all kinds of things upside down. Yes, it does indeed. So our reading today is um, from the beginning and the end of the book. Yes. So Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 17 is sort of the, uh, I guess, core reading in the minds of the narrative lectionary folk. Um, And then they give us the option of reading a little bit from the last chapter, chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. And, of course, we always take the optional reading. We have never seen an optional text that we have decided to leave out. Sometimes we add our own optional. (laughs) We haven't done that as much lately. (laughs) Let's read more. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's true. We love our texts. We do indeed. So let's let's go ahead and dive in. I am reading from the NJPS, picking up in chapter one. 
In the days when the chieftain ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah with his wife and two sons went to reside in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and his two sons were named Mahlon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. They came to the country of Moab and remained there. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then those two, Mahlon and Chilion, also died. So the woman was left without her two sons and without her husband. She started out with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For in the country of Moab, she had heard that the Lord had taken note of his people and given them food. Accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living, and they set out on the road back to the land of Judah. Okay, we'll pause there for a moment. And I already appreciate so much that you have given us some some sort of setting of this, not that a story of they went to some random place and married women from some random people. There's, there's a, there's a relationship. There's a story. There's a law maybe um, in place about the relationship between these two people, peoples. Okay. This is an impossible question, but you know a lot about the book of Ruth. So I'm going to ask it anyway. Uh, Do you think there's, sometimes I like to read this book as almost like blithely naive yeah. like fine you okay here's here's an example from my life i was raised in new york in a household with four daughters and it's not that my family i would say was so like forward thinking and actively feminist in any way but it never occurred to me some of the expectations that are on women in our country and so when i encountered them later in my life I was like, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. Like, I don't feel like I'm in conflict with you because I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. I just have never heard this before. Does it seem somewhat clear to you that this story is actively responding to and pushing against those? Or maybe that, like, this is a parallel reality and the laws just aren't as, I put almost want to put laws in quotes like that these stories that we've read before aren't so widely known and disseminated as we might think based on the fact that they're in the Torah. I love that question. I love the way you frame that. I have I have like seven responses. Yay! <laughs> I'll try to I'll try to keep it to a couple. One is I love that like is it naive? And you know, one of the things that I was thinking about that is that it seems to me like oftentimes like people are nervous or anxious about outsiders at at a sort of abstract level, Mm. but at the like level of personal relationship, they're like, Oh yeah, but I like those Moabites, (laughs) you know, like Moabites are terrible, but I love those Moabites. And so the difference between personal feeling and sort of societal expectation I think it's kind of an interesting one to think about, especially here because the Moabites have food that the the family of Elimelech, as I as I tend to say it, uh, really yeah. needs. And so, like when you need something, of course, you know, <laughs> suddenly Moabites we're are friends. Great. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. asked a question about is there more of an edge to it, and there are many scholars, not all scholars, who place the actual writing of this text in the period of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
Mm. Because in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, as you well know, they've, they've just come back from exile in Babylon. And the question is, why did we get exiled? And one of the answers is because we married foreign women, which yeah. Deuteronomy says not to do. Right. And here's a story about, you know, somebody, an Israelite who marries a foreign woman and then a foreign woman who is going to turn out to be faithful and the whole future of Israel hinges on her. And so you can read it with this really strong edge which is sort of given in the language of naivete, but which says, look, you know, Moabites have always been a part of our story. And so shape up Ezra and Nehemiah. And I mean, I think it's interesting to kind of entertain both of those possibilities. Mm-hmm. I, I read this text as trying to, I'll, I'll want to complicate this probably later, but trying to take a stand on behalf of welcome and inclusion of foreigners over mm-hmm. and against forces that are Mm anti-foreigner, but partly that's just driven by my own, you know, theological agenda, political agendas. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, and I think that's, I'm definitely, I'm certainly agnostic on the issue. I think it's really powerful to read it that way. And sometimes for me, it is also powerful to consider the possibility that texts that are in the Torah that seemed to me like, well, obviously everyone knew these yeah. texts to say like, well, we don't, we don't actually know that. Like yeah. just, <laughs> yeah. just because it says it's the law doesn't mean anyone did it. It right. means that someone who was powerful wrote it down and said, this is the law and was able to put it in the book. Like we don't know what the people were actually yeah. aware of. No, that's, a, that's, a, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Bobby, there are a couple of, names in here, the names of the sons, the <laughs> yeah. names of the city where they're coming from yeah. that are so sort of like potentially or actually like symbolic Yeah. that, well, t- tell me for, first draw out for us, please, if you would, what do the names of the sons mean? What does the word Bethlehem mean? Yeah. And then if that informs your reading of this story at all like yeah I'm so curious what you're what you're thinking about all of that the first as you're pointing out is Bethlehem so Beit Lechem which literally means the house of bread so there is an irony here uh that the house of bread has no bread and therefore Mm -hmm. people have to flee to Moab I don't know exactly what one does with that irony but it is deeply ironic Bethlehem of course also has resonances in both the Jewish and then later in the Christian tradition as the place where David is going to be from and later where Jesus is going to be from. And so mm-hmm. like your ears mm-hmm. kind of perk up when you hear Bethlehem in this text, I think. Mm-hmm. The names of the sons, Malon and Chilion, I think they mean something like sickness and consumption or mm-hmm. something like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. In my book, I say that they mean like, Sicky Sickerson and Deathy McDeath face. <laughs> like I'm a real serious uh, scholar, but that's kind of the play that's here. Like you name your kids, like that dude's going to die, you know? And then the dude dies. And so like either like, A, don't name your kids that. Don't name your kids that. B, it suggests to me that this story may be written with characters who bear certain names to indicate their function in the story. And mm-hmm. therefore that maybe what we have is a story that's trying to communicate some sort of political, theological, social uh, message more than we have like a, a rote recording of history. That, that will surprise you that, that I think that yeah. about, about the Bible. No, I mean, and I, I think, a, I think a many readers of this text would agree with that. Oh, yeah. There are cues in the story that this is a story. Yeah. 
Like this is a story from which we should learn things, yes. but it is not being put forth as a, a historical record. Right. Unless they were really bad at choosing names. <laughs> and it may well reflect some sort of historical memory, but I, lots of the details. Yes, but are, the way that it is, for sure, like whether there is a historical memory in there or not, I don't know. But the way that it's being written here is in story form. Yes. What's so interesting to me in this first section is like, if we just stop there, like at this point, what do we think this story is about? Who do we think it's about? Like, what do we think? I mean, can we tell? Maybe we Mm. can't tell anything yet. I mean, I was struck when you were reading by, you know, I think of this story as like the story of Ruth who saves her mother-in-law. But I was struck as you were reading by the tragic nature Mm -hmm. of this story. It has hit me in a different way. Partly, Mm -hmm. I don't know if it was partly just because of where we stopped or the way that you were reading or that it was, you know, voiced in a woman's voice instead of in my own voice. I don't know. But that line in verse five, both sons, Mala and Kilion died. Only the woman was left without her children and without her husband. Mm-hmm. Like that, I, I felt that in my, what's mm. your word? Kitschkies? Yeah, kitschkies. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so then I was like, oh, this is a tragic story about Naomi. Yeah. Reminding me a little bit of this tragic story of Job, but in a more kind of subtle it, it, way. Yes, no, in a more subtle way, but I feel like that is, it's a little wild that the whole tragedy of it is just just put out there basically in yeah. one verse. And yeah. then it's just like, okay, what are we going to do? Yeah. You know, the whole question is, what do we do now? What is Naomi going to do? What are her daughters-in-law going to do? But it it doesn't let you sit very long with yeah. the the real tragedy of it. But it is, I mean, it's, it's Jobian. She is she is living in a place where she is not from. Her all of the the men in her life had died, which was sociologically very important, and she has no descendants now. Yeah. There's an essay that I can't like. It's rattling around in my head. I had not thought of it. It's it's in a little festschrift that was written for Catherine Sackenfeld, and I I think Jack Lapsley wrote the essay, but I'm I, I'm not sure. But she the, whoever the author was compares the book of Ruth, Naomi's figure to Job and Mm. draws out those parallels. Mm -hmm. And then basically Mm -hmm. is like Job complains for 31 verses (laughs) because he Mm -hmm. feels like he is entitled to not suffer. Naomi just like in verse eight is like, well, we got to do the next thing. And like, she was reflecting from a feminist perspective on the difference Mm. and like how a male character and a female character are given space or not to process tragedy. That's I that is fascinating. And I want to I I love that and I want to think some more about it cuz I think that when I just read this by itself, you know, I almost want to push even farther and say like, well what about the daughters-in-law? Like yeah. they also have lost yeah. everything. You know, yeah. they are earlier in their life and so they have more opportunity to yep. start over. But um yeah, we really don't sit with the sorrow of this at all. Yeah. It's no, just, it's what, not, are, what are we going to do next? Yeah. What do we do? That's exactly right. Yeah. You were pointing a little bit to the sociological implications. And I'm just, could you draw that out? Just, I'm just curious what implications I just, particular. yeah. I mean, I think it's just easy for me to forget as a modern woman. I mean, losing your partner is tragic in any, any societal setup. And this is a patriarchal society. Yeah. 
where, you know, a a wife or a daughter was really sort of seen as maybe like one step up from the property of her (laughs) beloved property, but, but still kind of like really under the auspices of the man of the house. Mm -hmm. And so to not have a man of the house is really to be sort of like floating out there in space. Like you're not, you're not anchored to anything. And there are many places in the Torah where there's concern given for the widow precisely because the societal structures are not set up, you know, to, to care for the widow very well. The widow is reliant on, on people paying attention to those laws in the Torah that like you're supposed to care for the widow, but she's not under anyone's care per se. And so it's the community at a whole, as a whole, that's responsible is a very vulnerable position. No, that's exactly right. I appreciate, I appreciate that. The other issue that's going to show up here in just a minute, but is a little bit here is also when all the men have died in that culture in which your sort of future, your afterlife, Mm -hmm, so to speak, mm -hmm. is given in your descendants, not in some sort of beyond, Mm -hmm, then mm -hmm. the death of your husband and both of your children, both of your male children means that your family line Mm -hmm. is ended right there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so there is a sense of which, yes, she's had an immediate loss of dearly uh, beloved family members. And also there's no like Elimelech's family is over. It will be as though he never were. Right. And there's it no obvious way. He never existed. Mm-hmm. He's mm-hmm. been erased. And she's been erased, you know, like she also has been erased. Although right. the, although the know, concern of the text is probably with the lineage of yeah. Elimelech. But yes, it's there's there's a real sense of being cut off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe this is a, a dumb question, but why is she going back? She's been living, it seems like, a perfectly good life in Moab. Her daughters-in-law, mm. whom, who have, I guess, been part of her household, you know, for a long time now, are from Moab. Like, her life is set. She has a life there, and it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong. I understand that they initially moved there because there was a famine, and now it seems the famine has ended. But I don't know. Is it mm. is it better for her to be with her tribe because she's a widow? Why does she go back? I mean, I think, yeah, I, like what you were just saying about the vulnerability of widows and seems like maybe there's a sense in which she doesn't fully trust the Moabite community or the families of her daughters-in-law to mm-hmm. care for her. Mm-hmm. Whether that's a legitimate mm-hmm. concern or whether that is some sort of internalized bias that has emerged I don't know. Maybe, you know, I could also see if you've lost your family, you want to go back to where you've got people. Mm-hmm. But in some sense that, you know, is assuming that Ruth and Orpa are not sufficiently mm-hmm. family people. for her, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sufficiently mm-hmm. people. So that's interesting. Do you have any thoughts about, about her decision? Nothing particularly Astute, I, you know, I, I, it makes me wonder again about like we're we're talking about the fluidity of these, you know, quote unquote tribal lines here, and like the interrelationship between Moabite folks and Israelite folks, and I don't know to be drawn back to the place of your origin feels like those those connections are pretty strong. Like yeah. if you've been living somewhere else for ten years, surely she knows other 
she must have some community where she's been yeah. living. She's been living there for 10 years. I mean, it could also be that she's just had a horrifically tragic thing happen and just yeah. needs to start over and yeah. can do that now. But yeah. what else do we need to say about this introductory part before we carry I think on? I'm ready to hear what happens next. You ready to hear what happens next? All right, let's do it. Hi, I'm Terry Peterson, Minister of St. John's Church of Scotland in Gurich, west of Glasgow on the Scottish coast. And I am the liturgy writer for Bible Worm, which means I get to spend a lot of time listening to Bobby and Amy, and that is a great joy. It is fascinating to hear them read and talk through stories I thought I knew pretty well since I'm starting my third time through the narrative lectionary now. I always come away with more ideas than I can fit into a liturgy or a sermon, and working with them has deepened my own spiritual life as I write liturgy that follows the contours of their conversations. I appreciate that they don't shy away from the difficult parts, and that they always find connections between these ancient texts and our contemporary life. And it's fun for me to work those connections into liturgy that empowers worshiping communities to speak to and about God in new ways. If you join the Bible Worm Patreon at the Liturgy Worm level or higher, you'll have access to those liturgies and prayers that you can use or adapt, as well as early access to the podcast. Or there are other levels with different benefits, including Bible studies, access to the Bible Worm Collaborative Discussion Group, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this incredible resource for people of faith around the world. And now back to this week's podcast. So I am picking up then in verse eight. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, turn back each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that each of you find security in the house of a husband. And she kissed them farewell. They broke into weeping and said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi replied, Turn back, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I any more sons in my body who might be husbands for you? Turn back, my daughters, for I am too old to be married. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I were married tonight and I also bore sons, should you wait for them to grow up? Should you, on their account, debar yourselves from marriage? Oh no, my daughters, my lot is far more bitter than yours, for the hand of the Lord has struck out against me. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, a question struck me this time. So Naomi spends a lot of time telling them that, like, she can't provide husbands for them. Yeah. In all, she's very clear. (laughs) She's like, even in any kind of situation you imagine. There's no way that I can provide husbands for you. But it's not like their parents are going to provide husbands for them. Like, I don't know. Why is it better for the daughters to go back in Naomi's mind? Why does she want them to go back? I mean, the way that I have read that is that Naomi thinks the only reason that they would stay with her is because, well, because they want to have families but because they want to continue the family lines of their husbands, which is what Israelite Mm. law suggests, or at least is going to suggest 
that they should do. So it's not just that they should get married and start over. It's that they should, yes, that they should try to be marrying someone in the family that would. So if they go back to their family in Moab, this is the way I have understood it anyway. If they go back to their family in Moab, it's like she's released them of any sort of obligation that they might feel. And so they can go find a new life, you know, like it was very much possible for widows to remarry and have children. And so you can go back and do that in your place. If you come with me, then the expectation is somehow Naomi thinks I've got to be the one who's going to provide a husband for you. And I, I can't do it. This is, there's sort of playing with the idea of leveret marriage, which we talk about on the podcast every once in a while that mm-hmm. when a, man dies without children, then his wife is supposed to marry, ideally his brother, and have a child who then carries on the dead man's mm-hmm. lineage and legacy. And so that's what's in view here is Naomi's thinking like, okay, well, I got to, you know, get remarried, have a baby, a baby's got to grow up. It's just, it's not going to work. And in her mind, it seems like the options are either that or go back to Moab. That's the way I've read it, but I, I'm feeling very practical or something. Do you Do you read it differently? No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, as I was reading the story this time around, in light of our conversations about like Sarah and Isaac and the sort of expectations of what a family would be and sort of the way that that would unfold. And then our conversations about Moses and that, and that all the different people who sort of constituted his family in a way. Yeah. It's just really interesting to see here that Naomi really has a clear, like in her mind, like there's a way that this goes. Yes. And you have to adhere to that. Yeah. And the story really winds up turning that sort of on its head. And it's, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. The other thing that's interesting to me here is just like, a, I mean, so what happens in the next verse, which we haven't read yet, yeah. is Orpah is going to go back and Ruth is going to stay. Yeah. And it's just interesting to me, like when each of them decides, like there's a sort of progression of breaking the current relationships, right? Naomi, when her people die, she says, okay, this is over for me. I've got to go back. Orpah is persuaded, it seems, by the argument about her needing to find a family for herself. And then Ruth is not persuaded that the relation mm-hmm. that these current relationships need to be broken. I don't quite know what to do with that, but it's interesting to watch the degree of like Orpah initially seems to want to go back too, and then yeah. she's persuaded like, oh yeah, I do need to go have a husband and get on with my life. That you know that's so interesting, and I connect it in some ways now to my question before about why does she want to go back to yeah. where she was? Like, I th- yeah, that that sort of question of like, yes, you have these relationships now that have served you perfectly well for the last however many years, but Naomi is like. I just, I need to start over. I'm starting yeah. over. Yeah. And is telling the daughters that that they need to do that also. And you're right. Yeah. It's one at a time. They sort of consider that option for themselves. What Naomi seems to be saying here is, I am not sufficient for you. Yeah. Which is in, an interesting, like, I need to leave because I'm not enough for you. And I need I need you to stay here because I'm not enough for you. Right. I mean, we we all, you know, like if you... If you if you stay in a position that it's not that you dislike the position, but like you can only have one primary relationship. Maybe that's what the book is saying. I don't know if that's really true. And and maybe Naomi has, I don't know if Naomi actually has this fear, but that 
if they if they stay committed to her, they're not going to find this other mm. relationship. Actually, now that I'm saying that, I don't know if that's what Naomi's thinking or if Naomi is kind of not thinking that hard about it and just saying, like, there's a way that this goes. You need yeah. to find a husband. I cannot be responsible for finding you a husband. Yeah. Go back to your parents. Yeah. And find a husband there. Like, you need to start over in that context. Yeah. Naomi does not seem to be able to imagine a world in which there are no men immediately connected to them. Yes. Orpa seems also ultimately to recognize that as well. Mm -hmm. Ruth, I mean, the book, you know, does what it does in chapters two through four, but she seems to have a different sort of sense of what a primary relationship means and like who can be that primary relationship and, you know, what, I mean, she's just going to end up being committed without sort of thinking about, or at least being persuaded by this argument about husbands. Bobby, do you make anything of the fact that, you know, usually widows are sort of referred to as belonging to their father's home. But this, Naomi doesn't tell them to go back to their father's home. She told them to go back to their mother's home. Yeah, no, I I was noticing that. And I just, this text is woman-centric in a really interesting way. Mm. Women as women, being committed to one another, like being the protectors of one another, like that, that, there's an undercurrent in this text about that, which just kind of, for me, just shows up there, go back to your, to your mother's house. Like your mother is, your mother is the one who's going to welcome you back to that, to the home. So she's almost a little bit acknowledging that women are fully capable of, you know, providing a life and tending to and taking care of, even mm-hmm. while she's saying, I'm not able to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what, what would you say about that? I, I really like the way that you just put that, Bobby, that it's sort of, she's holding that tension, like that the sort of argument that's coming out of her mouth is you need to find a husband. Yeah. That is the reality that we live in. But then her framing it in the in the go back to your mother's house, it's almost like she's she's living in she's living in two worlds. Like she recognizes this social reality where they need to have a husband, and mm. she's not really interested in pushing back against that. Yeah. But also knows knows on some level deeply in herself that like women take care of each other and mothers are powerful and mm-hmm. And there are rules that we have to play by in society in order to have the life that we want to have in, in Naomi's mind. But that doesn't mean, like, it almost reminds me in in some way of this conversation we're having about, like, whether this book is arguing against the norms of pushing the Moabite people out. It's it's like, it's holding, it's holding the tension, you know, yeah. it's holding the tension of what the official social rules, either laws or or you know, less official social rules are and then what we actually believe to be true. Yeah. Up to this point, I know we probably should move on in a minute, but I just want to note that like up to this point, I feel like this should be called the book of Naomi. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. It is a story about Naomi up to here. Yeah. It is very much so. And I always just want to sort of hold that as like, what is the difference between telling this as the story of Naomi and telling this as the story of Ruth? Mm Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Okay. Is there anything else we should draw out from these couple chapters? The only other thing I want to say about this text is that, I don't know if this is true or not, but what I have heard 
back to names is that the mm-hmm. name Orpa is in fact the intended name of Oprah Winfrey and that they misspelled yeah. <laughs> this. I've I don't know if this is too. urban legend. Yeah. No, they misspelled her name on her birth certificate. And so the, thusly she became Oprah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've heard that. It has nothing to do with anything, but also what no, a but if of mine, we like hashtag Oprah, maybe she'll listen to this podcast and then we can. Yeah. Be famous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in college, a friend of mine ran the Charleston, the Cooper River Bridge 5K, and he finished right behind Oprah Winfrey. We kind of made fun of him a little bit that he got beat in a, in a road race by Oprah Winfrey. But she's a, if you're listening, know. Oprah, I'm sorry. Good. She's kind of a badass, it tur- as it turns uh, out. Yeah, in, in many ways. Out. Yeah. Yeah. I knew she was a badass in some of the ways, but I didn't know she was like a 5K. Maybe it was a 10K. I think it was a 10K. That's a lot. That's a lot of Ks. That's a lot of, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's about like eight Ks more than I got in me right now. <laughs> okay. Um, we're focused. We're totally focused. Okay. So we are picking up then in verse 14. They broke into weeping again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law farewell, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, see, your sister-in-law has returned to her people and her gods. Go follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, Do not urge me to leave you, to turn back and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus and more may the Lord do to me, if anything but death parts me from you. Those are some famous lines, Bobby. They are. They're and they're um, they're often used in weddings, right? Yeah, they are. I mean, as you know, I'm a Presbyterian ordained minister, although I don't function in that pastoral role on a regular basis. But I've done, I think maybe I've married five different couples in my life, and I think three of them, this has been the text, which is like that's a high percentage. It's a high of percentage. Ruth one, yeah. I mean, it's such a beautiful statement of commitment to another person. Mm-hmm. Here, you know, this is not at all about marriage, or at least in the, you know, the first reading of it, but it's about just commitment of a woman to her mother-in-law. But it, it speaks such a depth of commitment that, you know, people getting married think this is how, you know, this we want to talk to each like. other and commit to each other. Yeah, it's really yeah. beautiful. And I think it's so... I don't know, beautifully ironic that here Ruth is asserting it almost like throwing it in the face of marriage, saying Uh, like, no, I am not pursuing marriage. I am committing to you. You. Yeah. Even though that that is totally not the social norm and that is totally, you know, like this is a totally different ideal of what family and love and commitment is. And then we use it in marriages. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now that's super helpful. And because, you know, that we had just like, she's using it exactly to refute what Naomi has just said about the, the need for them to get married. I had never put it so succinctly as that, Amy. I really love that. It is a really, uh, I mean, it is, it is it is quite a powerful portrayal of what it means to throw your lot in yeah. with someone. And yes. the like completeness of yeah. it. Yeah. It's not just I will be here for you. It's yeah. like I tie my fate to your fate. Yes. 
But it's not even just, I tie my fate to your fate. I mean, this line in particular, your God will be my God. Yeah. Like the things that are important to you, I will make important to me. Is there anything that's like, okay, yes, it's beautiful. Mm. And it's really like, there's almost this like effacement. Like I will become to the greatest extent possible. I will almost become you. Yeah. I don't know. Is that like, it's almost a little, it's a little jarring to me, especially the like your God shall be my God. Like it's, I don't know. Am I just being, am I just being weird? No, no, no. That's a really important reading, Amy. Really important. Because, you know, we were talking just a little bit ago about the sort of the de- this tension between the Moabite and the Israelite and this sort of like progression of who turns their back, you know? And so Naomi yeah. is like, oh, well, got to go home because this culture I'm in now can't or won't support me. It's not sufficient to me. Mm-hmm. Orpa mm-hmm. makes it one step further and then goes back. And now here is... Ruth saying, no, no, like I am willing to forego my culture because I am so committed to you. And that commitment part is really lovely, but the foregoing of my own people is deeply troubling. Yolanda Norton, who's a womanist scholar at San Francisco Seminary, writes an essay about that. She talks about this as, I forget exactly what she says, but Ruth's assimilationist impulse or something like that, Mm. that in order for her to, like, she can't simply say, we can be committed to each other across this cultural difference. That's exactly right. Which seems to be the fissure that is ultimately dividing everyone. She has to say, I care so much about you as a person that if you won't let me still be myself, I will give all that up for you. Mm -hmm. And she sees that as deeply problematic in the the way that that you do. Like, what? Can't we find ways of talking about commitment that don't require the foregoing of mm-hmm. our entire cultural identities? Yeah. Are we ready to see? Uh, okay. So are we ready to move on? You have your thinking eyes on, Bobby. I do. <laughs> my thinking eyes. Yeah, they're like rolled back in my head. <laughs> Bobby is peeking into his brain to see what's in there. No, I was just like connecting this to earlier texts that we've read this fall and thinking about we have had kind of this series of texts in which women are committed to the people right in front of them. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes mm-hmm. in ways that cross mm-hmm. boundaries. Yes. And so Pharaoh's daughter is the one who is occurring to me, maybe Shifra and Pua. Like, but like, so this, the issue of crossing boundaries is not quite as obviously there, although it is there, but the like, being committed to and tending to and caring for the life that is in front of you, that has been consistent Yes. in many of our texts this this fall. And I just think that's interesting. Here we have yet another text in which these sort of bigger questions are a little bit sidelined. And what matters is like, here's a person who needs family and I'm her family. And so that's, That's the end of that conversation. I'm going to love the person in front of me. I love that, Bobby. And reading this, these chapters this time made me think the same thing, but I think I hadn't gone all the way there for this particular section of text. And I'm Mm. really glad you did that. Like, you know, in the abstract, you can say like, you can't do that. Or like, that's a bad idea. Or you should plan strategically or, you know, right. There's nothing abstract about this text. 
Yeah. Like there are these two people who are in relationship with each other. And you can just picture Ruth looking directly at Naomi and saying, I choose this person in front of me. Yes. It makes no sense and breaks many rules. Yes. And here we are. I love that. And then the, you know, the, the cost is high, but if this is the cost, then like maybe we could have the same commitment with a lower cost, but in this moment, like this is what it's going to cost me. And yet, yeah. This relationship is what matters. Yeah. Bobby, I feel like we need to move on to the last chunk, which is all the way in chapter four. Yeah. I know we're not covering the whole book of Ruth today, no. but it is, you know, when we met with the Bible Worm Collaborative to talk about this, they were like, this is really quite a jarring, you know, <laughs> going from yeah. chapter one to chapter four. Now we're at the end of the story. Is there anything you want to give us plot-wise or should we just kind of do the best we can? It's funny if you just read it straight because like the whole point has been well, there's nobody to marry or have uh-huh. babies. And then the next verse we pick up, like she's married and having a yeah, baby. So Boaz married Ruth, right? She became his wife and he cohabited with her and they bore a son. Yeah, yeah. right. Yes. Yeah, so. I mean, the long story short, like, I mean, that's the long story short. But That's the long story short. They have come back to Bethlehem during the barley harvest and Ruth has managed to figure out a way to feed them for that season by going to the field of Boaz and gleaning behind the harvesters. And then Naomi has worked out a plan with Ruth in some way or another in chapter three that Boaz is a near relative who could marry Ruth and also could redeem a plot of land that Naomi apparently has. Mm -hmm. And so Boaz has married Ruth and they are... Uh, yeah, now they are about to have a child together. And so this commitment kind of that Ruth has made to Naomi plays out in this very unexpected way that we are just not reading at all. But that's what's happened in the middle. That's what's happened in the middle. Okay, so I'm going to pick up, and we just have a couple of verses from from chapter four. So I'm picking up in verse 13. So Boaz married Ruth. She became his wife and he cohabited with her. The Lord let her conceive and she bore a son. And the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not withheld a redeemer from you today. May his name be perpetuated in Israel. He will renew your life and sustain your old age for he is born of your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the child and held it to her bosom. She became its foster mother. And the women neighbors gave him a name, saying, A son is born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, father of David. Mm -hmm. I asked you um, at some point in the first chunks we were reading, like, doesn't it seem like this book should be called Naomi? Yeah. (laughs) And this ending also... Ruth has dis- Ruth is like the primary actor in all those chapters in between that we haven't read all those chapters. It's a short book, but in, in the section in between that we didn't read. Yeah. But the beginning is about Naomi and the end is about Naomi. Yeah. This is about Naomi. Yeah. So let me ask first, if we read this as a story of Naomi, mm. imagine the book is called Naomi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What is this story about? I'm resistant to that way way of reading the book. I'm I'm trying to pay attention to why I'm resistant to it. But, Uh you know, like my first response was, this is a story about how an Israelite woman who loses her livelihood manages to get it back Mm -hmm. through 
the erasure of a non-Israelite woman. Oh my, that got dark. It got took a turn right there in the middle of that sentence. <laughs> yeah. But that's just the way yeah. that's okay. just the way that I am seeing. Yeah. I don't want to read it that way. <laughs> but that's you. where that no, gets you. me. Mm-hmm. Like I think we have to take that seriously, honestly, that this book has a mm-hmm. problematic side to it for sure. Mm-hmm. Where were you headed with that? I feel like that's not where you were headed with that question. I don't know where I'm headed with that question. I just think it's so interesting that the beginning and the end of this book is completely framed by the story of Naomi in this like Job-like way, as you're saying, she loses everything. And then at the end, she is restored to wholeness. And the mechanism through which that happens is all Ruth. Yes. But if you're only reading the beginning and the ending, Ruth is really, is just, is like a means through yeah. which the restoration comes. Yes. And it drives me crazy every time I read the book in its totality, especially after seeing all that all that Ruth does in those stories in between mm-hmm. that it that it begins and ends with Naomi and then it has this sort of I mean the word that comes to my mind is gall to call the child Naomi's. Yeah. Even though I understand I understand what it's saying, it's sort of going back to that idea you brought up before that we want some continuity in the lineage, you know, now, yeah. now Naomi's ancestry is not cut off from, you know, the eternal peoplehood of Israel and, and all of that stuff. The erasure feels so profound to me. It does. Yeah. It does. And I mean, I think that's important and kind of unavoidable in this text. If yeah. you take this text very seriously. Yeah. You know, it also, the the book lands on David, and then it's going to land on David again in the very end of the book in verse 22. And so in a sense, this whole story has been about David, which is like a mm-hmm. like a, a ne- another erasure of Naomi. There's like a double erasure in which the point was, we're trying to get to this man who's going to be the king of Judah, mm-hmm. who would not have existed without these two women. Mm-hmm. Now, the way that I've been thinking about that is, again, relating back to these other stories that we've been reading. One of the people in the Bible Room Collaborative made this comment about how the women in the stories this fall are responding to God's call in ways that save the people of Israel, but they they don't do it through like the bells and whistles of a burning mm-hmm. bush, but they just mm-hmm. do it because they're committed to the person in front of them, which, which we've been talking yes. about. And, I really love that insight and that way of thinking about this is that, you know, this story at the end of the day is about without Ruth, there would have mm-hmm. been no David. Mm-hmm. Without David, there would have been no United mm-hmm. Israel. There would have been mm-hmm. no promise. Yes, and David's so, the one who's famous. David's the one that we read all the stories about. My God, yes. we still talk about David like all the time, all the time, yes. all the time. But when you zoom into the story of David— you see the story of Naomi, and when you zoom in on the story of Naomi, you see the story of Ruth. Yes. No, that's exactly right. So I think there's this sort of, you know, the positive takeaway from there, I think, is that sometimes you can further the plan of God, not by doing things that are particularly flashy, mm-hmm. but by being committed to the people that you're committed to. Mm -hmm. And then the flip side of that story, as you're 
pointing out is that oftentimes we erase the people who whose callings are not flashy, especially when they are women, and especially, especially when they are women who are cultural minorities. Mm-hmm. They get erased, even though what they do is the key to the whole Is the key to the whole thing. They are the actors in the story. One of the things that you say a lot that I try to remember is when you see something in the biblical text that you don't like, you can't do anything about that, but you can look in the world and see where the same thing's happening and you can do something different. And to me, that's part of the message of this book. It does erase Ruth in light of Naomi and Naomi in light of David. And I don't like that. Mm-hmm. But so what that means is I can go now and find that in the world and think like, how am I participating in that same kind of erasure? And can I make different choices than the book of Ruth makes? Gosh, Bobby, where could you find that in the world now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I, I think that's, I think that's right. I think, you know, it's so, it's so interesting. This, this whole book is Okay, there, there is, let's see, how should I even tell this? It, it's read as such a, the, sto- the biblical story in which there is no tension yeah. often in my community. Yeah. Like everyone is so nice to each other yeah. <laughs> and everyone works really hard and is generous with their time and energy. And like, finally, thank God we have a story that's just a pleasure to read. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when I push when I push on that in exactly the way that you are pushing on that now, you know, shockingly, people don't like that. No. You know, they're, they, yeah. they want their, their pleasant story where finally everyone gets along and is yeah. good to each other. But I think it is urgently important in the same way that, we, that it's so easy to not see the work women do in the world and the work that cultural minorities do in the world yeah. to be able to see in this text that those dynamics are very much at play. Yeah, that's absolutely right. The two scholars that have helped me see this the most are Yolanda Norton, who I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and then Gail Yi, who is a Chinese-American. I think she's fourth-generation American. Uh, her family's from China. And she writes about Ruth through the lens of her experience of being Chinese-American. And she talks about being a perpetual foreigner, like Ruth mm-hmm. the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, which she compares to people asking her where she's from. And when she says Chicago, mm-hmm. they're like, no, really, where are you from? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also this idea of the model minority where they're mm-hmm. certain, like, we will accept you in our culture as long as you perform minorityness perfectly. Mm-hmm. And she sees and that. Does in, she does. She does. And the book is very committed to that celebrates her exactly because, and, and as Yolanda Norton points out, also because she's willing to give up her Moabite culture. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, when I teach this book, people always say, why did you ruin that book for me? And yeah. I'm like, well, I mean, sorry, <laughs> but also like the reason is because these things happen in the world. And the, exactly a naive right. reading of this mm-hmm. book is a naive reading of our culture, which does real harm to real people and we got to we got to stop doing it and Norton and Yi are the are the ones who helped me see that yeah so the one other thing that i i think we should probably lift up here is if you read this book in light of Ezra and Nehemiah like we were talking about earlier 
Then the claim is King David, who is, you know, the great example of an Israelite, is himself the product of an intermarriage between Israelite and a Moabite. And so there never has been, like if there were not marriage across culture, if there were not Moabites and other minorities who had participated in the life of Israel, we never would have had a King David. And so you can read Ruth as sort of countering Ezra and Nehemiah Mm -hmm. and saying, y'all, like, you got to stop kicking out the foreign women because the foreign women have been part of our story since the very beginning. Since the beginning. There's no story without them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think think that's what Ruth is trying to do. Yeah. And and in a way that is also true of me as a white male uh, progressive, in trying to do something really good, it has unawares also created a whole bunch of problems that it needs to deal with. Yeah. But what it was trying to do, I think, is really important thing. It just, yes. And I think it does what it is trying to do in important ways. Yeah. So I think, yes, the fact that there are things that make us uncomfortable in this text doesn't mean that we need to throw it out and say this is a terrible right. book. Right. It did some important things for the time that it was yeah. written. And it could have done better. And it could have done better. And we can do better. You exactly. Know? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So... Here we are at at our closing. And so I want to ask you what is sort of rising up for you today as someone who has really spent a lot of time with the book of Ruth and is only reading the beginning and the end today. I don't know if you can really do that, but but that's there's the invitation. If you're only really thinking about the beginning and the end of the book of Ruth, what rises to the top for you? I was thinking about that, Amy. I love the way you asked that question. And we talked about it a little bit with the Bible Worm Collaborative, that it's such a temptation to talk about this whole book. Mm-hmm. But if you just read chapter one and chapter four, like we did, the, um, the, the abruptness of what has happened in between is really jarring. And what that has sort of led me to is what Ruth is doing in chapter one she has no idea the way that's going to turn out in chapter four. Mm-hmm. She's right. not doing it because it's going to turn out that way. She's not doing it because she wants there to be a King David. She's doing it because she's committed to her family mm-hmm. and she loves her mother-in-law and she's willing to do whatever it takes to preserve that relationship. That is all in the world. I think she's doing, she has no bigger picture in mind. And yet she changes the whole history of Israel and really the whole story of the world by loving the person in front of her. And it's just like, we've had this conversation along the way, but it's really striking me in this text. We've seen it in earlier texts, but sometimes the calling is simply love the people who are given you to love and the story will take care of itself. But we just, we need to be, faithful to our community. And sometimes that's all it is. It's not flashy. It's not fancy, but it's hard. Requires some difficult decisions sometimes. Love the person in front of you. Love the people given to you to love, I think is how we Mm, like to say that. I like that. And the story will take care of itself. Her, Her impact on Israel is every bit as important as Moses'. It's like it's in a different way. 
but in a it, different way. Yes. It has a similar effect. Not flashy at all, but urgently important. And I think I think there's a lesson. I am somebody, we were talking about our Enneagram types, and I'm a we four with a three wing who wants to be like recognized as important. And this text is like reminding me, like, no, no, no. Live into your four self who is just authentically committed to the things you're committed to and, and mm. let the other things work themselves out. Yeah. No, I was thinking about those sort of personality types too, because because part of the sort of magic of what Ruth does is she is not strategic. She is not planning ahead. She is not thinking practically. She is not trying to game things out in a way that I just feel like sometimes is ingrained in different personality types, but also is really ingrained in our culture. Like, yeah. don't be foolish. Yeah. You know, like you have to, you have to be practical. You have to take, save for retirement. Maybe yeah. they're saying I don't have to save for retirement. No. <laughs> <laughs> we say that um, a lot on the podcast, I feel like, and yet. <laughs> but the other thing I want to raise up or another thing I want to raise up about Ruth is, is or about the book of Ruth is we've mentioned before that, um, you know, when we were reading the story of Sarah, you mentioned the the difficulty, like the real difficulty reading it as modern folks who live in a world where like, hey, hey, not everyone is actually going to have children no matter how much you want them. And not every yeah. prayer is going to lead to like, that's, that's not how, that's not how things work. Yeah. And it's, you know, beautiful in the story, but also, you know, whatever it is, not, not always true to life that Ruth risks this traditional model of family yeah. because she is not kidding about her commitment to Naomi. Yeah. And in the end, she is rewarded yeah. with precisely the traditional yeah. family. Yeah. Which I almost feel like, like, oh, that kind of ruins the story. I mean, it doesn't ruin it, but like. No, I hear you. That's not always how it works. Yeah. Um, and I and I want to sort of raise up and honor that Ruth was willing to go wherever it went. And it actually went, it went this way. But yes. But her willingness to put aside traditional models of family in order to love the person in front of her, I want that to stand louder than the fact that she mm-hmm. wound up with a traditional looking mm-hmm. family. Because I think we need stories like that. That's so important, Amy. And like, you know, the narrative lectionary text is actually just ends at 117. And it sort of mm-hmm. suggests you could read for 13 mm-hmm. to 17 if you want mm-hmm. to. And the point you're making is like, at least as I'm processing it, is chapter one is itself a beautiful and important story, even though you have no mm-hmm. idea how that's going to turn out at the end of that mm-hmm. chapter. Mm-hmm. What she does matters, regardless of what the outcome is. Yeah, like, and I like including the end because what she does is baked into the fabric of the story of Israel. Yeah, yeah. And I want to raise that up without saying, like, don't worry about risking everything because you're still going to get the social norm of a family. (laughs) Like, that's not not the point I want to raise up. Yeah, but that— that that other one, that the story of David is the story of Naomi and the story of Naomi is the story of Ruth. Yeah. Bobby, next week, we're going to learn a little more about this grandchild, grandchild of Ruth? I think grandchild of Ruth? 
great-grandchild? Great-grandchild. Great-grandchild of Ruth? One of the descendants of Ruth. <laughs> Her son is Obed, whose son is Jesse, whose son is David. Yeah. Three, yeah. Great. Three generations. We're going to go down that route, and we're going to read about David's anointment in 2 Samuel, and then look a little bit at Psalm 150, just for good measure. All right. All right. I look forward to it. Me too. All right. Well, have a good week, Bobby. Have a good week, y'all. And we'll talk again soon. All right. See you next time. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. A special thank you to our newest supporters, Lori Albertson, Catherine McDonald, Kathy Reed, and David Parsons. Next week, we read from 2 Samuel chapters 5 and 6 and from Psalm 150. We'll meet that most famous of kings, King David. Until then, keep on digging.